0: Well, good morning, church. I actually felt like I was getting a little bit stuck in a ruck saying good morning every Sunday, so I Googled it. And I also want to wish you a sun-kissed hello. Uh, yeah, that's for everybody who's here, everybody at home. All gets Although I thought about it, I was like, I could just, this week, happy Super Bowl Sunday. So any, yeah, go Dolphins, they're not in it. Oh, well. Uh, but let me ask you to grab your Bibles, if you have them, Uh, And I hope you do. There's one in the pew in front of you as well. Turn with me to the book of Luke. uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. And for those of you who know, or those who may be just joining us, uh, we have been looking at the life of Jesus these last few weeks as it is unfolding in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Because as Christians, we cannot get enough of Jesus. You know, his life, his teachings, his miracles, the way he interacted with people, uh, the example of his life, it's just all of that speaks us about who Jesus is. And that's why the Gospels were written in the first place, to tell us about Jesus, uh, what he did and who he is. And our passage this morning, I think, has something, something special, something more to tell us just about who Jesus is. In fact, I would even say that Luke and his Gospel has actually leading us. He's been building up to this very moment. Uh, this truth about Jesus, that Jesus has even the power of life over death as he raises uh, this young boy from the dead. And it's something, raising the dead is something Jesus only does three times uh, during his earthly ministry. Um, So if you want to follow along with me, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, which uh, Garrett has already read, uh, verse 11 to 17. As Luke reveals Jesus to be, the Lord of life itself. And he writes there, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the briar. And the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would just be with us in our time uh, this morning. As we look at Jesus, who is the Lord of life, that he speaks and life happens. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would hear you speaking life into our lives uh, here today through this passage. Um, Quiet our hearts, open our ears, prepare just us to hear these words of life that were spoken so long ago, and yet, Lord, they're still being spoken to us even here today. Lord, we ask that you would be Heard. We ask that you'd be lifted up and glorified. And Lord, um, just ask that you would be present in our time today through your Holy Spirit um, just to spend time with you and your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is probably a weird way of beginning this sermon, but uh, I love collisions. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I was watching TV, and on the news was a story about car safety. And I'll be the first to admit, car safety is one of the dullest topics in the world for not for one important thing, and that's the slow motion footage of cars colliding. You know, they smash cars into walls and barriers and into other cars, and they do it sideways and frontways and backways, and the test dubbies go flying, and windows shatter, and cars parts go everywhere, all while these cameras are rolling, and it's very exciting. Collisions are exciting things. And nowadays on YouTube, you can watch all kinds of things getting smashed together or blown up or shot out of a cannon, all in slow motion. It's fascinating to watch, which is actually what brings us to our passage uh, found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, because, you know, for lack of a better term, what our passage is describing is nothing short of a collision where two large crowds of people kind of smash together in a little town in the southern region of Galilee called Nain. And the first crowd, the first group of people, is one that's being led by Jesus. And it's a group, I think, that was full of excitement, full of enthusiasm. Uh, One article I found this week put it like this. It said this group was full of blessing, full of life, full of salvation, full of healing. As Jesus went his way, and wherever he went, something happened to Mark that one who was more than an ordinary man was walking through the cities and villages of Palestine. Because Jesus had been teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and people learning things about God that they'd never understood before. And more than that, Jesus was doing miracles. He was casting out demons, curing diseases, healing the sick. In fact, this group had just witnessed Jesus heal the servant of a Roman centurion. And the servant wasn't even there. Jesus is actually about to go to the man's house to perform the miracle. And he just said, listen, you know what? Jesus, I'm a soldier. I give orders and take orders every day. Jesus, you're a man of authority. Just give the order and I know it will be done. And it was to that point in his ministry, Jesus said the greatest act of faith he had seen. So maybe it was time to celebrate, maybe it was time to grab some snacks, maybe people just needed to get out of the sun for a little while, but they decide afterwards to head to this nearby town. And Luke puts it like this in our passage, verse 11, that soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And I don't think Luke uses that that term great crowd lightly. I want you to picture in your mind a big group of people. And you know what? On any normal day, I would think a crowd of that size would cause a commotion in a town, especially a small town. I mean, the people living in that town would wonder, like, what is happening? Like, where are these people coming? Are we being invaded? Like, is a flash mob? I know they didn't have those back then, but I mean, hundreds many hundreds if not more people are just showing up at this town all at once en mass and they arrive at the gates but you know what on that day that crowd approaching from the outside it may not have even been noticed because on that day there was a crowd on the inside of the city that had business of its own that it was attending to and as Jesus and his followers approached the gates to go in They encounter this other crowd of people coming out. And the mood of this crowd was very different from the one that followed Jesus. Because look at verse 12. We're told, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from that town. Was with her. You see, the second crowd that we encountered this morning was far from excited. They were far from enthusiastic. They were far from feeling full of blessing because the second crowd was a group of mourners. And there was mourning and there was weeping and soaring over the death of one of their own. And we're told he was the only son and she was a widow. And it's tragic, a young man taken before his time. And according to the Jewish tradition law at that time, burials had to take place outside of the city. So this crowd was the procession of people who had gathered to support this woman as she was carrying the lifeless body of her son to the grave. And it was a solemn obligation. And we know that in those days when somebody died, Uh, people, especially if they had the money for it, they would often hire professional mourners to cry and weep loudly as the body was being taken to the grave. It was actually a status symbol. It was a sign of wealth. The bigger the crowd, the bigger the cost, the more important the person. And yet understand that this woman was a widow. And this widow had just lost her only son, And in losing her son, she had just lost everything. Legally, she had nothing to her name. With the death of her son, everything that she had, every part of her life, every part of her son's estate would pass to another, the next living male relative. She didn't have money left to pay people to mourn with her. And yet Luke's gospel tells us that a considerable crowd was with them. And you know what that tells me? Tells me that the people of this town loved this woman, loved the son. And they showed up that day not for the money, but to share in the pain of this woman's loss. This crowd was a crowd of people hurting. People full of grief. They were a group of people who knew sorrow. We're told here that these two crowds, one rejoicing and one in agony, these two crowds come together. They collide at the gates of the town. And that means there's no way for these crowds to avoid one another. It's a bottleneck at the gate. And I marvel at that because... You know, you think about it. Five minutes difference in timing either way for either one of these groups and they would have passed each other without incident. But I think that's why we need to see this moment as a divine appointment. Because you know what? People often accuse God of being too late. When Lazarus died, his sisters say to Jesus, if only you would come sooner. When Jairus sends for Jesus to heal his sick daughter, Jesus is still on the way to the house when the servants come to him and say, don't bother, you're too late. But here's the thing. In every circumstance, in every situation, Jesus is right where he needs to be right when he needs to be there. Jesus is not too late, even on his way to a funeral. So Jesus collides with this funeral procession exactly when he needed to. And you know, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I imagine the moment happens something like this. As this sort of joyous crowd around Jesus approached this town, people are talking loudly and laughing and maybe singing. The mood is light. There's a buzz in the air. Life is good. But then those near the front of the crowd, they, they see this other group coming out of the city and they see It's a funeral procession. You know, much as we would today, people at the front probably would have stopped what they were doing, quieted down, and simply just moved to the side of the road, perhaps with their heads bowed, just to let the funeral procession pass. And as that moment rippled through, you know, flowed through the crowd, one by one, they all just get out of the way, and they stand aside, and respect for the loss of this woman. All of them except one. All of them except Jesus, who stands in the middle of the road and waits. And I mean, you can imagine the people who are carrying the coffer wondering, what is this crazy guy doing? Like, we're a funeral. Like, get out of the way. And yet Jesus stands his ground as the funeral approaches and he still, Jesus, doesn't move. And Jesus, you know, scanning the crowd, finally sees the mother, the widow, following the body of her dead son. And we're told in verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Now just think about how odd... Jesus' behavior here is. Can you imagine that you are in a funeral procession taking a loved one to the graveyard when some stranger cuts you off, brings everything to a stop, looks at you and says, hey guys, stop crying. I mean, even Jesus' followers might have wondered what Jesus was up to. And if that weren't odd enough, we read in verse 14, then he came up and he touched the briar And the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Now Jesus wants to have a word with the corpse. And he actually goes up and he touches it. He touches the dead body. And that would have been unheard of. Because again, according to Jewish law, touching a dead body was something that made a person just ceremonially unclean. Even touching a dead body by accident would have left the person sort of defiled in the eyes of the people. Most Jews would have treated a dead body like it was a poisonous snake. So it very much seems like Jesus is putting on this, like, it's basically, it's a crazy rabbi 101 clinic for his followers here. They have no idea what's going on. And do you know what? After Jesus, after some of the stuff they've heard, like, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich stuff Jesus was talking about, a person would be tempted to think that Jesus is a few screws short of an apple cart at this point. Until we read those words in verse 15. Where it says, And the dead man sat up, and he began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And I, I, I don't have words to describe what it must have been like to see Jesus do that that day. I have, I have no framework I have no point of reference to understand the magnitude of seeing someone who is dead and about to be buried brought back to life, healed and made whole. And I think the disciples, to the disciples, the people in the crowd, it would have felt surreal. Like their entire world had just been flipped upside down. Like all of a sudden, if Jesus is around, you couldn't be sure about anything. So you can understand the reaction in verse 16 and 17 where it says, fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. And what a moment. That must have been for the people there that day. This moment when death and Jesus collided. And death blinked. And if you were in that crowds that day and you didn't know better, you would have had to wonder, who is this Jesus? Because we're told the people there figure that yeah, Jesus, at the very least, is a great prophet that has risen. But you know what? Luke, as he writes this call, he actually takes us one step further. Because look back at verse 13. Where he says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said, do not weep. You see, something important happens in that verse that you may have missed because that is actually the very first time in his gospel that Luke himself as the narrator refers to Jesus, calls Jesus the Lord. Other people did it. Peter did it when he's talking, but this is the first time Luke does it. And that's exactly Luke's point here. Luke has been carefully leading us to this place all along. As the narrator, as the revealer of the gospel, he has been very carefully, very intentionally revealing to his readers who Jesus is a little bit at a time. You know, through the majesty of the virgin birth, through his victory over Satan's temptations, his authority and his teaching, the miraculous catch of fish, curing diseases, healing the sick, casting out demons, forgiving sinners. And now, With this passage, Luke puts the final piece of the puzzle into place. Because Jesus is more than just some traveling rabbi. He's more than just some powerful miracle worker. Luke tells us and he shows us that Jesus is the one that God promised. He is the Savior. He is the Deliverer. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ because He is the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord over disease, Lord over sickness, Lord over sin, Lord over the demons, and now we know he is Lord over death itself. R.C. Sproul tells us that Lord, that word Lord, was the highest title given to God in the Old Testament, the meaning of which is sovereign one, the one who rules over all things with all authority and power. And he says, and here the title which has been reserved for God has now been given to the Son of God, God incarnate, that Jesus is the Lord. And you know, that's a truth that was not just something that was relevant for the followers of Jesus back then in the first century. That is a truth that is relevant to us as we live our lives today. Because you know, Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still setting up divine appointments in our lives. Jesus is still showing up in places where we live with a willingness and a desire to move on our behalf, and He is still offering life because Jesus is still the Lord. And going back to R.C. Sproul, I love it when he says about this moment in Luke's gospel. He says, "If this one passage." We're the only passage that survived from the life of Jesus. There's enough in it to reveal his sweetness, excellency, person, power, and saviorhood. We could live the rest of our lives trusting just this much information about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we see in our gospel this morning, or what we see in our passage this morning, really is the gospel. And what I came to realize this week is What Jesus does for the widow's son in our passage is the same thing that Jesus has done and is doing for each and every one of us. And I want to walk you through that thought this morning. Because this passage begins with the unavoidable and stark reality of death. Donald Donald Miller writes about the widow's son. and He says, in this story, death is seen at its worst. It had struck a youth, claiming its prey long before the lad had lived out the normal span of years, taking the only son of a widow. Widows in that day were pitiable in any case, for they had no legal right and could not receive any inheritance. They were dependent on their sons or the relatives of their husbands, whose support could not be demanded. The death of her son had left the widow defenseless in a cruel world. With no heir, the family name would be cut off in Israel. And here's the tragedy of humanity at its worst. The widow's tears, he says, were an eloquent testimony to the lordship of death. And you know, just as we are told in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The lordship of death comes for each and every one of us. And in our sin, we're not merely sick, we're not merely flawed, we're not merely disabled, we are dead. And death, that death doesn't just mean that one day our bodies will fail and our physical lives will end. It also means our sin has separated us from the life and holiness of God. And you know, ever since sin entered into this old world, death has been the ultimate end for us all. And for so many people, death is the great fear because it offers no second chances. And the statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one person will die. You can check that out. (laughs) And we can put a man on the moon. We can see the wonders of the smallest atom and yet one day all of us will still be stopped cold by death's unyielding grip. And we're powerless to do anything that will change that. And without Jesus, that is the only outcome for every single one of us. Death is something that eventually we will all face. And yet it's here, where we are powerless to do anything to save ourselves, that Jesus arrives on the scene With the unqualified grace of God. And I love this because when you look at this passage, notice there's nothing in here that tells us if this woman and her son were worthy of this miracle that Jesus performs. Now, there's nothing telling us that of all the people in the world, it was these people who most deserved a second chance. And it wasn't like Jesus knew these people, it wasn't like they were friends of his or even his followers. In fact, all we're told is simply that when Jesus saw the sorrow on this widow's face, he had compassion. That's it. You know, Will, William Barclay elaborates on this verse and he says, You got to understand, there is no stronger word in the Greek language for sympathy than the one that is used here by Luke. And again and again in the gospel story, it is used of Jesus when he had compassion on people. Jesus was touched to the very depths of his heart by the widow's tears. The message, paraphrase, actually says it well when it says, when Jesus saw her, his heart broke. And can you even imagine your pain breaking God's heart? Jesus literally hurt for this woman. That's what the word means. And for a moment, just stop and think about what a wonderful truth it is that we get to love a God who loves us like that. A God that hurts for your pain. A God whose heart breaks for you in your sorrow. And a God who answers you with compassion and grace. And it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you earned it. It's not because you were the top performer of good deeds for the 2024 fiscal year. No, it's simply because God loves you. And he has compassion for his people, all people. And that's the truth we're told over and over again. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8, 5 God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Ephesians 2.4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus is motivated by his love for us. He's moved by compassion. He's moved by a desire to offer mercy to people. We serve a Lord who is moved by unqualified grace towards all of us. And it is that grace that leads us to resurrection life. Because the love of God for us never lets death have the final word. You know, it said that there was a new pastor who was just brand new to the ministry. And he was called to do his very first funeral. So he thought, you know what? I'll look in the Bible to see how Jesus would have conducted a funeral. And you know what he found? Jesus didn't do funerals. <laughs> in fact, every funeral that Jesus encountered turned into a celebration of life. Just like in our passage. Because that is who Jesus is. Where once there was only death, Jesus brings life. And I've told you this before. In fact, Natasha read this very verse. In Jesus' own words, Jesus 10.10, 10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. NIV says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. New Living Translation, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The amplified version. I came that they might have and enjoy life and have it in abundance till it overflows. And the message paraphrase again. See, Jesus says, I have come so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. You see, when the Bible speaks about Jesus, it says many things. But one thing that always comes through loud and clear is that Jesus is life. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's the living door. He's the resurrection. He's the bread of life, the water of life, the light of the world, and the light of life. He brings eternal life. He brings abundant life when we believe in Him. When He speaks, the dead live. When He speaks, lives are changed. And He turns mourning into dancing, He turns sorrow into do- joy. He trades the, answers the temporary with the eternal and darkness with light, deception with truth, bondage with freedom, guilt with forgiveness, loss with hope, and he answers the life, a life of despair with a life of purpose and meaning. Jesus is the Lord of life. And as Dale Moody once said, death is the king of terrors, but Jesus is the king of kings. And that's why when we truly believe, we gain a hope in Christ Jesus. That is unshakable. And I think we see that hope beginning to form in the hearts of Jesus' followers in our passage. Because they knew Jesus. With Jesus, something had changed. They knew that Jesus was something special. Because I think most people at that time expected the Messiah to show up and rule an earthly kingdom. But that meant in the span of a man's life, 50, 60, maybe 70 years, it would all be over because he would die. But a Messiah that could conquer death itself, a Messiah that could offer not just life, but life eternal, well, that changes everything. And as Jesus says to Martha, when Lazarus is still in the grave, John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that's hope. Hope that goes beyond this world. Because you know what? You can ask the question, how? How does the widow or the widower go on after the flowers wilt and the grass grows on the grave? How do the parents go on after burying a child? How does a family go on after burying a beloved parent? How do any of us go on when the power of death silently and viciously steals away from us those we love? Well, the answer and the only answer I have that means anything when death is staring us in the face is Jesus. Jesus because the power of Jesus changes everything. And you know, some of you who are here this morning, you may be facing circumstances in your life that can only be described as God-sized problems. Whether it's cancer or pain or sickness or loss or hurt or betrayal or loneliness. I want you to know whatever it is that you are facing, whatever shadow of death is hanging over your life right now, it's time to invite Jesus into it. It's time to understand that Jesus is Lord over it. It's time to understand that the power of Jesus is greater than. Greater than your disappointments, greater than your hurts, greater than your suffering, greater than your fears, and greater than even death itself. And that even as challenges and trials will still avail us in this life, with Jesus, we can look beyond and know there's more to come. We can have hope, even in our hurt. That's why I love the words of Peter when he talks about our hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's hope. And that's the gospel. It begins with the reality of death and sin, it is, meets the love and the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, which leads Jesus to acting to bring life. Where once there was only death and the resurrection, reality of resurrection life. And that fuels our hope for all of our days to come. And this morning I only really have one application that I want you to be thinking about as you think about this passage. And that's to be sure. Just be sure of your relationship with Jesus this morning. Because today, you have the opportunity to be certain of where you spend eternity. You have the opportunity to wipe out sin from your life through his forgiveness. You have the opportunity to assure yourself of an eternity in heaven. As Jesus speaks life into your life. Because there's a God in heaven who loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And he's offering you mercy, and his free gift of salvation if you will trust Jesus as your Savior. And you can come to him. Come to him with your guilt. Come to him with your pain. Come to him with all of your problems and your burdens. And that goes for every person here, no matter where you are in your walk of faith. And that's the hope I want for you. You know today you can begin to live with for him and in him and all that you do. Today you can have that assurance. and I would encourage each and every person listening today to do exactly that. I mean, after all, that's exactly why Jesus came in the first place. He came to save sinners and offer life. He came to rescue us from death and give us eternal life. And that's the lesson we learned from in this little town called Nain. Because where death and Jesus collide, the ultimate result for all of those who follow him is life. Because Jesus is the Lord of life. He's Lord over even the power of sin and death. Let's pray. Father God, um, this is such an amazing passage. And Lord, I can't even kind of wrap my head around what it must have been like, even as Luke describes it for us, to see the love of Jesus on his face as he saw the widow, to, to see the power of God released through his words and to see the awe of the people as they realize that Jesus truly is the Lord. Lord, I can know it, but Lord, that's something that's greater than my brain can even comprehend. And yet, Lord, I think the same is true for my salvation. That sometimes my own salvation is greater than my brain can even accept or understand. How amazing the thought that while I was still a sinner, you died for my sin on the cross. That the love that you had for me and for everyone sent Jesus to die so that we could live. And not just live, but Live life abundant. Live a life of joy and hope and purpose and meaning. A life where even in our sorrows and even in the hard times, Lord, we know that you will be with us and you will speak life into all that we are going through. And Lord, that was your plan all along because, Lord, you are the Lord of life. And Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you today, I pray that they would. I pray that, Lord, they would surrender their life to you, that they would know the Lord of life, that they would know your salvation, that they would know you as Lord and know you as Savior in this moment. And, Lord, for those of us who do know you and are still going through those times of hurt and hardship, I pray that, Lord, we would have your hope and that your hope would define us and that, Lord, your hope would shape us and strengthen us and carry us forward through all the days ahead. Because Lord, even in our greatest sorrow, we know that death is not the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Lord, we know that when death and Jesus collided on the cross, death was conquered; it was swallowed up in Your victory. And You offer us life and life, life everlasting. In that Lord, You continue to speak life into our lives. Because Lord, You are the Lord of life. We thank You for this.